Hey folks, it's Josh. I've just got a quick word before we get started with today's episode. The past few weeks have been some of the most tumultuous I can remember. The protests, riots, overall social upheaval, sparked in no small part by the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. They seem to create a space for a wave of awareness and accountability. For roughly three weeks, my timeline was full of Black Lives Matter posts, scenes from protests, videos of police brutality. It felt like the whole world was waking up to many of the issues in the black community and wanted to demand change. Then, over the past couple of weeks, another community spoke up about the pains they've been experiencing, victims of sexual assault and harassment. A vast majority being women, these people across a host of industries, including comics and games, revived the wave of Me Too, calling out their abusers. The attention and energy that had been centered on the black community seemed to pivot to victims and survivors of sexual assault in a heartbeat as story after story surfaced. And that pivot was for good reason. These are situations that demand attention. But this week, my timeline feels normal again. Whatever normal means. Now, ever since the pandemic, people have talked about going back to normal of getting the ability to return to the way things were pre-COVID-19 and all of the absurd things that have happened since that outbreak. And as we watch states push forward with reopening, paying no heed to steadily spiking cases of infections or the increasingly filled ICUs, I can understand still why people have this feeling of wanting to go back to normal. Even though I know it's dangerous, I can admit that it somehow feels a bit comfortable to see people on the streets, eating at restaurants, going to stores like nothing happened. And I personally certainly miss going to see my friends, going to parties, my local esports bar. But this isn't a time to be comfortable. This is a time to be uncomfortable, to do the work that helps those in the margins. This is a time for us to recognize our own privileges when and where we have them and work to help those who aren't in the same position. Now, as a black man in the world, there are plenty of places where I don't have privilege. But as a cis man, particularly in the gaming space, there are plenty of places where I do have privilege. It's important to recognize the power that comes with the privileges we hold. It's important for me to recognize the ways that I've implicitly benefited from the power dynamics at play in this industry, and the requirement to commit to helping make things better for those who've struggled in the past. As far as Intelligame is concerned, we'll be donating funds to support efforts that reach out to women, organizations like Black Girls Code and Rain. I personally will be looking for more opportunities to spotlight women and non-binary folks in the game space through this show and through other means. I'll also continue working to help create safer spaces for people to connect at industry events through functions like Unparty, and I'll keep an eye out for other ways to advocate as well. This doesn't affect my desire to also want to spotlight black voices, to make a larger space to recognize the black creators in the space and the black stories that we're trying to tell through games. As the algorithms of social media continue to pivot towards whatever the subject is of the day, We have to keep our eyes and hearts on how to push forward. For black folks, for women, for LGBT folks, there's 
There's just no simple way to look at any of this. We're all in this together, and we all have to work together to make this space more diverse, more inclusive, and safer for everyone. As they say, if it's not intersectional, it's bullshit. Stand for black lives. Stand for survivors. Please wear your masks. And thank you. Welcome back to IntelliGame Radio. I'm your host, Josh Boykin, founder of IntelliGame.us. Now, oftentimes we talk about the game industry, a broad term for an entire range of creators, from independent developers to massive multi-million dollar corporations, content creators and critics and artists and voice actors and all sorts of other talent that funnel into this multi-billion dollar economic engine. But it's about more than just dollars and cents. For many of us, it's about artistic creation, storytelling, expression. It's about fun, and so many other things we experience as humans. Pain, remorse, trauma, healing, growth, determination, struggle, wonder, whimsy. And none of those feelings were new when what we'd consider to be modern-day games came onto the scene. Play is a part of our existence, where we and so many other creatures live and grow and learn. And there are so many different ways to learn, to encapsulate our experiences and ideas inside games. Games are a constantly expanding medium, and like other forms of art, what we see in the mainstream is often propelled by what's created on the fringes. Lana Polanski is a game critic who specializes in finding great games created by people outside of the mainstream. Her Twitch channel, called The Freak Museum, often highlights works that I feel like I would have never heard of, even as someone who follows indie games. Her perspective comes not only from a love of games, but also a desire to talk about the workers who make the games what it means to value the labor that goes into the game industry, and to call out those who would exploit that labor for profit. Our episode today features a conversation Lana and I had back in the beginning of May earlier this year. This was just after content from The Last of Us 2 was leaked and making the rounds. At the time, there'd been rumors that this content had been leaked as part of a labor dispute between Naughty Dog, the game's development studio, and an employee. A couple hours before Lana and I spoke, Sony reported that they'd discovered who leaked the content and that they weren't connected to Naughty Dog, but the discussion around the ethics of leaks and labor practices still holds weight, particularly as we think about what the world looks like as workplaces shift around COVID and fears of future pandemics. Though the connection for our call wasn't always the cleanest, I think you'll still appreciate the discussion and Lana's perspective. As always, you can send feedback about the show to me via email at josh at Thank you so much for listening. Let's go ahead and get started. All right, uh, Lana Polanski, thank you so much for being on Intelligame Radio today. How are you? I'm really good. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I 
have appreciated the work you've been doing for a while and keep up with you on Patreon, that kind of thing. And I think that there is a, an angle that you bring to games and games criticism. That's really exciting. Um, and, and not just exciting, but also we need more of it. So I'm glad to have you here to be able to have some of these conversations. Could you tell folks who might not be so familiar with your work a little bit about how you got started writing in games? Um, I started writing in games when I was still actually going to school. I was going to Concordia University for journalism. Prior to that, I I was like an annoying liberal arts kid. <laughs> so I was already pretty into like art criticism and art history. And I was wondering what I wanted to do with that information. And I, I didn't actually start playing games like as a real passionate kind of hobby until I was about 18, because I didn't really have that many games when I was a kid. We couldn't really afford them, and my mom didn't really want, you know, the expense on me. I, I, like, I think part of that might have been gendered, to be honest with you. Okay. Like, like, you're a girl, what do you want this for? I did have a few games, like I did have a Game Boy Color that I got as like a birthday present, and I had I played a lot of Pokemon, that's most of what I had, and I had like Mario Kart that I got sure. used. So I did have some familiarity with, with gaming, but I wasn't really like a gamer as a kid. And, you know, like my mom was like a single parent. She didn't want to like spend a bunch of money on consoles and, and stuff like that. Right. And it wasn't until, I mean, I feel like this is like a kind of a cliche, but like it didn't really start to click with me until I like met um, my partner <laughs> and like he, he like introduced me to a bunch of stuff that I had never like gotten to play when it came out. Uh, I was really blown away by like the world building and the composition and the inventiveness of some of what I was looking at. And I felt like there wasn't really like this was this like modern creative medium. There wasn't really anything much about it that I like learned in school. Like w w there wasn't really talk about much mass media in general or like contemporary forms of art outside of the academy. And I was really wondering if like there was a way to bring some of those conversations to bear on this new form, which was, True. you know, a, like a massively popular art form um, that we were still arguing about when I got into it, still arguing about whether it was even technically an art form, oh. which I mean, seems really silly in retrospect, because I think a lot of people, this is a bit of an aside, I guess, but I think a lot of people have this thing in their heads that if something is an art form, that necessarily means it has to... Um, possess some level of conceptual depth or quality. And I actually don't think that's true. I think it's a value neutral term. Like the way Angles uses art means like all kinds of different things. And for me, it's kind of the same. Art for him is like pottery and like tool making. And for me, it's just like, you know, any like creative endeavor, <laughs> really any creative, like if you're using a, a set of tools or like using a medium in order to do something creative that has no real other use value necessarily or has no other primary use value other than mm -hmm. to be like a creative experience or whatever then to me like that's art it doesn't really matter if it's good or not sure there are all kinds of like interesting questions about the way that this particular art form is produced and the culture that surrounds it at first mm -hmm. when i got into it i was mostly just interested in it from an art historical and art critical perspective and i was interested in talking about the specific things that games do that other things don't do that's value neutral it's not saying that other things are worse and games are better it's that every medium does something kind of special 
and unique that kind of defines it and what is that thing for games the obvious answer to that is interaction but when you dig into the history of art you realize that there is an entire legacy of you know that runs kind of orthogonal to the official games history of mm. participatory and interactive artworks and so give me an example okay there's a there's a bunch um so like computer art goes back to at least the 1950s that's less interactive art and it's more just like graphic art Okay. As soon as computers were kind of invented, people started doing creative things with them, like any other canvas tool. True. Like the printing press or like canvas or like terracotta or any other medium that you can make images on mm-hmm. or tell stories on or whatever. It's just, it, to me, it just seemed like another step in that direction using, you know, chips and, and wires and stuff instead of, you know, brushes and stamps or whatever. Right. There's there's computer art, there's stuff like the situationists in the 60s who did all kinds of participatory or sort of uh, activist-oriented artworks like Joseph Baez. There's like Gia Clark who did psychodramas and did these participatory art experiences that were like part theater, part psychotherapy. There's all kinds of really weird, interesting literary experiments from the mid-20th century like Jorge Borges did a lot of really weird stuff with storytelling, with branching paths in particular, which is less like interactive, but it is like this interesting early experiment and kind of something sort of akin to a choose your own adventure. He has these stories about like the nature of infinity, where a guy goes on one path and then that path splits into a million different paths. So like, there's all kinds of stuff like that from the 20th century that's sort of written out of the history of video games. But like, if you look at a lot of the people that make games and you look at like things that sort of, again, run kind of like orthogonal to it, like stuff like net art. There's mm-hmm. a very obvious philosophical through line between those different experiments. And that I think is like a very different way of looking at the evolution of it as a medium compared to like the technological progressivism that you see all the time within main- mainstream video games. Or it's just like, you know, technology got better and then therefore games got better. Right. You know, it feels like there are a lot of ways that your knowledge of history informs your your game curation style. For as long as I've been running around the, the game space, I feel like a lot of my concepts of how to, to curate and to look at games come from this more traditional and sometimes, you know, technological aspect. But the games that you tend to highlight, and I think the the experiences that you discuss in your criticism seem to venture a little further outside of the norm. Can you talk a little bit about, for instance, for your stream, the the Freak Museum, how you choose some of those titles? Okay, well, some of those I just already happen to know about because I, I'm plugged into a lot of really weird networks. Like I said, I started this when I was like 18 or 19. I was still in school. When I started, I really didn't know that much about sort of the alternative kind of avant-garde of games or like it's it's weird indie fringe and Mm -hmm. i sort of got into it by way of um like capital i indie games so when i started it it was just you know i mostly just knew about like mainstream games that i thought did little things here and there that i thought were really interesting and wanted to investigate further you know Mm -hmm. like i played you know i don't know yoshi's island and and Geometry Wars and Breath, uh, not Breath of the Wild, Ocarina of Time, and like, you know, fairly well-known and well-regarded games that I thought were doing pretty unusual stuff that I didn't really see very much in other art forms or 
it was expressed in a way that I really hadn't seen before in anything else I thought was really interesting. I wanted more of that specifically. Um, mm -hmm. So I quickly got bored of trying to write about mainstream games because I found myself writing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, it's basically kind of a pipeline, especially now everything is so sort of homogenized because you're trying to, you know, these things are really expensive to make and they take a lot of labor power. Mm -hmm. And so you want something that is going to get return on investment. So there's not really a lot of incentive to do really like wild experimental things. You can do that once every so often as a risk or as part of some kind of like prestige flagship thing that's going to take like five years to make. And you can kind of like bury something interesting in there. But for the most part, that's not really the case, which is why games kind of have this reputation that they do of being artless. Again, like there are material reasons. There are like productive reasons for why that is. Mm -hmm. There are economic reasons for why that is. So for me, I was like, well, you know, there's obviously something really uh, special about this that I want to know more about. I also quickly fell in and out of love with sort of the academic side of games, which, again, mostly just felt like an intellectual justification for the industry as it currently is. Mm -hmm. If you look into like ludology versus narratology, which was always kind of like a bullshit dissection, like there's no reason for those two things to bifurcate. Games are both at once. So is that like the idea of focus on focus on mechanics versus focus on narrative? Pretty much. Uh, it, uh, yeah. Put in simple terms, that is essentially what it is. I mean, okay. don't want to get into the weeds with it too much because it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's stupid. <laughs> it's, it's a stupid, um, it's a stupid waste of time for overeducated people. Sorry. <laughs> like, sorry. One thing about that was like the, the, the narratologist who came, became the center of it, Janet Murray, a lot of people are actually kind of going back to her work because she kind of got laughed out of game studies for not being oh, wow. technologically focused enough or focused enough on mechanics or level design or sort of these sort of formal elements of games. And she was made into a laughing stock. And it's hard not to think that some of that wasn't partially due to academic misogyny. And part of that wasn't due to a general disdain for like the liberal arts amongst people who see themselves as sort of an extension of STEM and therefore... Yeah. Uh, more intellectually rigorous than people who do artsy fartsy crap um <laughs> you know but it, it it seems like i think that she was treated really unfairly so she famously wrote hamlet on the holodeck okay. and she got into a lot of rows with a lot of famous game studies people like jesper jewel and and um, gonzalo fresca and a bunch of other people anyway doesn't matter <laughs> so for me it was i kind of fell out of love with that because it's like again this is just like a lot of the schools, a lot of the academies are just like training facilities for more game workers in order mm -hmm. to make the same stuff and be exploited in the same ways. And a lot of those places get their fundings and their sponsorships from major industries. Like I know because I know people who've, who've done game studies degrees and it's like they just, you're a labor pool. And they every so often a game studio will come around and pick a few people out of that labor pool, that like training pool. And like you, you can maybe get a job at one of these places. Like that's the hope of all of the people who go through game studies. Um, if it's not to become an academic. Sure. So I fell out of love with that pretty quickly. So a few of us actually a few years back, so like me, uh, some people uh, who were part of that, like Zolani Stewart, who used to have a, a journal called the Arcade Review that was really cool. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a bunch of other people. Heather Alexandra was actually involved in that. So there was a few of us who were kind of like mounting this challenge to the Academy and to the you know, the theories, like the dominant theories of games formalism, not just formalism, but specifically games formalism, like game studies formalism, 
which is like you're oh. only looking at the formal elements of games and not like the narrative elements, not the music elements, not the visual elements, literally just sort of the skeleton of like the love, like how the mechanics function and what the level does and whatever, as though you were looking at like the pieces of a car or a toaster. And none of us ever disagreed that there's a lot of aesthetic or expressive potential in those things. We all agree with that. But what we were trying to say is that like, you have to look at it holistically, how those things are working in concert with the other things that are in the game, which matter just as much. You can't ignore those. So we kind of mounted that challenge. And that was kind of an interesting situation to be in. What was that? That was like 2012, 2013. It was prior. It was just prior (laughs) to Gamergate. Uh And that's when everything kind of fell through the floor. Right. But it was just before that. It was somewhere between the recession and Gamergate. <laughs> and there's a the lot culture, you can say. Like the, the timeline touch points that we have are, really are good. fantastic. Really good. Um, there's a lot you can say about what the recession did for indie games, too, that I don't know if you want to get into. It's a whole other conversation. But yeah, so for me, I already made enemies with the luminaries of the industry, and I made enemies with the Academy. <laughs> <laughs> and I burnt a lot of bridges doing that. And I was, I, I know that I'm taken less seriously because of it. I know that, I, that, you know, I'm probably not going to get a job at any of these like major publications and that they're not really interested in most of what I have to say. So I kind of became disenchanted with all of that, all of that, mm-hmm. the, the surrounding kind of culture that was, I think, a mystification of what the industry actually is, which is like a human meat grinder <laughs> that where people are put sure. into to, to pump out like very cheap entertainment. That's why people outside of games see it as cheap entertainment. And I thought that was a real disservice to all of the the long history, people trying to engage with interactive or participatory modes of expression. All the artists who did that is including a lot of fine artists, but I think it also is a major disservice to a lot of the people who are making these like really interesting works of art with computers yeah. who deserve to be engaged with and who are often uncredited and ignored and unpaid. It's also a massive disservice to the people who work on the mainstream games, too, who are who are super exploited. So there's a lot of layers of that there, where I felt like a lot of people are putting this a, a tremendous amount of creative energy into something that wasn't really giving it back to them in the form of recognition or reward or respect. And all of the really, really interesting stuff for me, the stuff that attracted me to games in the first place, all of that was kind of happening on the fringes anyway. Like I said, I kind of got into it by way of indies and by way of the sort of academic stuff. And then when I realized that like a lot of that stuff was just as plugged into, you know, the industrial kind of ideology about how games are meant to be like created, like even indie games, like there's so much I can say about the indie game space as sort of just like, like a minor arm of like the mainstream where it, sure. it has a lot of the same kinds of processes and a lot of the same sorts of people who get to sort of enjoy a certain degree of fame and prestige while most people kind of work in silence. A lot of labor is obscured and a lot of people who are doing a lot of the most interesting things are obscured. And then you get like a few people who get to be like auteurs in the indie spaces. And they're the people who get to like have their own companies and be millionaires. And then hopefully one day they can, they can be like a Kojima or they can be like a David Cage or something and have the kind of like major studio leverage that one of those names would have. Like that's kind of the dream is to level up from indies and enter the mainstream with, um, with the patina of having been like an indie auteur. Taking this kind of, this sort of outsider's perspective and seeing some of these ways that there are 
there are works that people are creating that fit outside of these what might be considered typical indie successful bounds. Mm-hmm. Where do you feel that fits in sort of the game's criticism space, right? So the work that you do, I've seen it through Patreon. Uh, so you have a live stream where you've highlighted a number of games that I think fit outside of that norm. Uh, but you also do various writing for uh, publications as well. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like there can be a space to start highlighting more of those works that are outside of the norm? I mean, you know, we tried, like I said, like uh, some peers and I, we, we tried to mount that challenge and we tried to have our own sort of independent media and we, we got in through the door uh, at, pl- at certain places that either have massively downsized or have shuttered since. You know, look at somebody like Chris Priestman, who he's somebody who I follow, who I rely on a lot. He has this cur- curation site called Warp Door that I use to find if I'm really hard up for something new. I usually go there and there's always something interesting to find on Warp Door. And he's one of the last few guys who are really doing that. And he had a column at Kill Screen where I actually used to work for a, a really long time where he was writing some of the most interesting and bracing and unusual stuff about games. Like, it was the only place you can get an interview with, like, John Clowder. If something really interesting and weird and challenging was happening in, like, what Stephen the Catamites calls the, the hobbyist game space or the alternative game space, Priestman was the guy who had the scoop on it. Mm-hmm. And they fucking laid them off. A lot of us seemed like we either kind of had jobs or we had prospects a few years ago, and then that all fell through. Um, a lot of these, a lot of these places couldn't maintain, you know, like the cost of running. We're always sort of just kind of seen as fringe, not really like the main course, which is everybody wants to talk about whatever the main thing is, of course. So it was never really seen as important. And it was, it always just sort of felt like, a lot of these publications were just sort of like kind of patting you on the head and throwing you a bone because it felt like a bit, a little bit of like um, a golden age where, Oh, like we have this like one kind of like side column that we, we kind of shove all of the cool indie stuff into without any differentiation, just because games had this kind of like cultural moment mm-hmm. in like the mid to late aughts. And especially indie games, particularly, there was that indie boom post-2008, which is related to the recession. And they had their kind of moment, and so there was a little bit of extra focus on them. But it always just felt like, oh, you've become like kind of lucrative for a minute, and that's the only reason we care about this. And then the second that you stop producing value, we're going to stop paying attention to you. It always just kind of felt like a favor that the, the big guys were doing for us. And then as, as soon as it stopped being like valuable or profitable, like that went away. Now, in the midst of of that, and that feels like a, I mean, I mean, working in games press, I think we've all had conversations about that kind of where does the money come from? How do you keep things going? Where is the value coming from? Right. And, you know, going through like the listicle era and all of that nonsense with people trying to just basically attach revenue to direct criticism Mm -hmm. even though you're talking in the past tense like these are the things that did happen it feels like you're still doing that work today even if it's on an individual level well yeah like what i mean is that before there was more of a sense of community and there was like a sense of a uh, like a network that we kind of had and then after 
I don't want to get into the whole Gamergate thing because it's like a whole separate conversation. But like after that happened, like a lot of people who already didn't really feel particularly protected or supported by the industry kind of fell away. All some of the most interesting critics and artists were like, well, fuck this. What's the point of this? If this is what I get out of it, then like I don't really want notoriety in this industry. It's it's for what I'm doing. It's not really worth the struggle. Right. So I might as well go do something else. So a lot of people just kind of fell away and a lot of really interesting projects kind of just dissipated. But yeah, there's like a few people like Chris Priestman still out there. I'm still out there. There's all, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of like incredibly interesting hobbyists and like avant-garde developers and artists who are doing all of these cool things. So I'll never run out of content. Yeah. But as a critical space, it's really a, like a pale shadow of what it used to be. But I, I keep it going because... First of all, I don't really know what else to do. I've I've collect I've I've spent so much time with this particular medium and this particular side of things and I've spent so much time accumulating all of this like useless knowledge. What else am I going to do? The only other thing I really know how to do and what I have been doing is like labor reporting. So I can do, like, if I want to talk about games and I want to talk about art in games, this is what I have to focus on. This is the only place it's really happening. And it's one of the most interesting and fertile grounds to talk about, like, the huge gaps in recognition and credit and payment for the amount of labor involved, like, between what the hobbyists are doing and then, like, what major studios are doing. Like, there's an incredibly interesting economic, political economic conversation to be had about that as well. You're penchant of bringing in discussions about sort of the socio-political implications of of whatever it is you're you're talking about i think add a really important critical lens and i i think actually talking about these ways that sort of the loss of community after gamergate after a number of the things that have been taking place with ad revenue and sites shutting down or laying off their staff. That seems to be a, a pretty decent segue into discussions about labor. Mm-hmm. I know that you recently were involved in a live stream raid for Game Workers Unite. Yeah. What are some of the ways that you've seen labor taking place and labor movements taking place in the game space? Okay. Well, you mentioned before, like what creates value? Well, the obvious answer if you're a Marxist is labor. Labor <laughs> creates value. Labor created value when we were like laboring to create this critical space. We created that value and it was for a very brief period when there was money to go around, that labor was very briefly recognized as creating value. So, okay, I did this this Game Workers Unite raid. I've done it before. I did it once for Halloween like last year. Game Workers Unite isn't a union exactly, but it is an advocacy group which is full of union organizers. Mm-hmm or like labor academics even. And it's full of people who kind of like know their way around organizing a workplace and are advocating for people in individual workplaces in order to do that. And like giving them information and advice about how to do that and sort of operating a little bit from the outside because it's delicate, right? Like um, video games have, particularly if you work lower on on the ladder, these really huge NDAs, there's a lot of industry blacklisting. There's a lot of punishment for like speaking out about abuses or leaking anything like the naughty dog thing or using any kind of like actual leverage is is something that is like severely looked down upon still. It's a form of commodity fetishism where people will say like, well, if you leak anything that's like bad for the workers because like the workers will feel bad that the, all of their hard work got, got leaked and they couldn't control that. And it's like, 
okay, but so in the case of Naughty Dog, allegedly, we don't even know what happened, but allegedly, like, this is this is a person who was a worker who presumably put in a lot of work to make this sure. thing and used it as leverage. People will use the workers as, like, shields to defend industry processes that structure, like, marketing and, like, product releases and stuff in specific ways. That really kind of benefits both the consumer and the owners, like the bosses. So they'll just like repeat management's lines, which has a chilling effect on people. Like people don't really, from my experience, people aren't really that worried about leaks because that makes them feel bad that their work got leaked. They're worried about leaks because they're worried about collective punishment. I recently did an expose on major, maybe the biggest quality assurance firm. So game testing, they do other stuff besides game testing, but they're like a, you know, they're like a third party software services firm. Most of what they do is game testing. I wrote a story about that for Rank and File, which is a Canadian labor publication. It's not a games publication at all. Right. So I wrote about that and I wrote about the use of wage subsidies in the province I live in, in Quebec, that a lot of these companies get away with to subsidize the incomes of their workers who are largely, it's just like a rotating door of contractors, like minimum wage contractors. So I wrote about that and I wrote about how keywords in particular, according to what a lot of these workers were telling me, were really dragging their heels during the pandemic. We're having people come into the office. We're not providing adequate PPE. We're putting all of the sanitation and health uh, onus on on the workers themselves and then taking credit for things that they didn't actually do. Like they took credit for being able to social distance, for example. But the reason they were able to social distance in the office was because like half of their workforce simply didn't come in. They didn't want to take the risk. So they, they'll do, like, they'll collectively punish people, they'll chill dissent, they'll immediately after, and this is where it relates kind of to the, the Naughty Dog thing, immediately after our piece came out, we had all of these leaks, people waked, like, internal memos and chat logs and emails and all kinds of stuff. Keywords started immediately hammering them about, like, don't share things to the press, it's going to affect client confidence, basically doing the same thing that the people defending Naughty Dog were doing. Don't leak things to the press because it's bad for the workers, which basically just means if you leak things to the press, we're going to punish all of you. And people know that, you know, and that's what they're really afraid of. It's really disheartening to see like, you know, progressive, um, ostensibly lefty, ostensibly pro, pro-union pro people in games, particularly a lot of people who are very successful in the indie space, who are ba- basically bosses within the indie space, um, repeating mm-hmm. management's lines, but protecting it, pr- pretending it's because they're pro-worker. That's a bunch of bullshit. I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to swear, but it is. Um, <laughs> I was spending some time on Twitter after the Naughty Dog leak happened, and I felt like I saw a number of, uh, I mean, obviously Naughty Dog had their initial statement right afterwards saying that, you know, they felt it was a shame that things were leaked. Um, I feel like I saw a number of developers who also were saying that they they felt for other developers, not necessarily, you know, they yeah. weren't speaking against the position of somebody who is an owner, but saying like, you know, these are the ways that the work that they've put in over all of this time has been, has now been, you know, spoiled. Yeah, that's what are I'm there, talking about. Exactly. That's a bunch of crap. I guess to me, it, it, hmm, I'm trying to think of, so how then, if these, if people are feeling this way, um, if people want to take steps to be able to address these issues that are, are pro worker to be able to provide more advocacy or more power for workers what are things that they could do to to help advocate for those uh for those folks in those positions okay so like the first thing to understand about a lot of the developers who were saying that stuff 
a lot of them are bosses, first of all, or they're project leads, or they're some kind of supervisor. Like they have people who generally have leverage within the companies where they work. That, and, and something to understand, and this is something that came up with keywords a lot too, is that there are, by design, major divisions between upper level senior staff and lower level staff. And that those designs are created in order to split the workforce between the people who feel invested in the company and the people who are the most exploited. And so when those people speak out or when those people do something like leak something because maybe like we don't know what happened, maybe negotiations fell through, maybe this guy was just sick. like we know Naughty Dog has a history of abusive practices, like mm-hmm. maybe this guy was just sick of how he was being treated and had no representation. Workers usually don't go nuclear like that unless there's a pretty good reason. And so the lack of a curiosity from people going, oh, well, I feel for the other workers instead of asking, well, what could have caused this is stunning. And so and I think a lot of people don't understand, like worker in at least in games, and I'm sure this is true in other places, is not one homogenous mass of people who all share the same interests. There are major class divisions between senior staff and lower staff. This is a, right. this is true in, in, a, in a place like Keywords that has this incredibly Byzantine levels process where, you know, you have people who are non-permanents, permanents, on-call, uh, contract workers. You have expert staff. You have level ones, level twos, level threes. You have like these incredibly like minute divisions between supervisors and managers and project leads. It's It's this incredibly deliberately complex thing. So when you say worker, like there are going to be these like major divisions that you have to be kind of prepared for. I, I can't say anything specific about what GWU is up to with their, their whatever they're working on, but like understanding the conditions of these places, understanding how the hierarchies work and listening to the people who are the most exploited and understanding what their concerns are and respecting what their needs are, respecting what would be safest for them, what they're the most comfortable with. Like for me, every single person made certain requests about what I, what I couldn't reveal because it might compromise them. Pretty much all of them are anonymous. Again, because blacklisting is a major issue in this industry. It's not just one company. It's across the board. You know, like there are these major divisions, you know, so you have to sort of be conscious of like the situation that you're going into. Not all companies are structured the same. So you have to you have to do things like you have to do a lot of surveys. You have to salt. You have to talk to people. You have to build trust with people. You know, I'm not doing like the GW organizing myself, so I can't necessarily speak to all the work that they're doing. But this is just my experience as like a labor reporter. Um, What I've learned from people, what people have told me. And what I've learned from my friends and my peers who actually do like labor organizing. And I, I don't just mean in games. I mean, like I have I have friends who do labor organizing and like the healthcare industry and stuff, too, who say a lot of the same stuff. You know, that there there are these like specific uh, strategies that you have to sort of use depending on what your situation is. Um, one thing you definitely don't fucking do is that when a story comes out that's alleged that isn't even confirmed of what happened, you don't start immediately taking the side of the management and throwing a worker under the bus without asking why he did what he did. Because that's a surefire way to prove management right. Yeah, it, it feels like there are there are so many different ways that issues of labor cross outside of the bounds of games like we discuss them in terms of the games because it's the industry we're in but i think for a lot of us who have worked in in other spaces i've also worked in healthcare um you can see a lot of those parallels between the you know the the ways that people can be exploited in certain situations i think even as we um i think this this weekend 
uh, Sony had said that they discovered who the leakers were and that it turned out that they weren't affiliated with um, with Naughty Dog or Sony. There you uh, go. And of course, they then said, you know, um, they then said that uh, they don't, you know, they can't say any more than that. Um, but it, regardless of who those people are, those issues in those labor forces still exist. Um, and that seems like there are being able to find ways to take steps to advocate for people um, is should be a primary concern. Yeah, right. Like, you know, people need to feel trusted. People need to feel supported. People need to feel like there is a there's some kind of institution with some kind of coherent protocols that has their back, that understands the law, that understands like what not to say and what to say and when to say it. It understands how to build power especially sort of um, in secret or kind of on the down low. There are certain things that you kind of have to like learn from experience, but that's what GW kind of exists to do. Again, I can't really speak to anything specific that they're doing, but like these are people who have prior experience who can bring that to people who like in games probably have little to no experience with organizing and don't really know where to start. For me, it's like I want to write about the most interesting things that are happening in games, which are almost always happening on the fringe, but I also... I'm interested in labor reporting because it's like, again, the people who are making these incredible, beautiful, magical things are regular people. They're regular working people. And they're, this industry treats them like absolute dogs to churn out people's cheap entertainment. And as for, for me, like when I'm dealing with a lot of the like, quote unquote, hobbyists, you know, the avant-garde art people, some of them are professional artists. Some of them are people who are able to rely on what few grants and public arts funding still exists. A lot of them are regular working people who do these things kind of in their spare time, who put a lot of love into it, who are working regular jobs, who are not well off by any stretch of the imagination. And as always, like I think all the always the most interesting art tends to come from the working class and then kind of funnels up into whatever's the most profitable and whatever's the most reproducible. One of the most interesting things for me is like I play a lot of these really weird games and then... I see stuff that gets like funneled up into the mainstream uncredited where it's like all of these like really interesting, thoughtful art uh, experiments in storytelling or like level design or like character design or like whatever element of the game gets funneled up into these mainstream places. And it's sort of like um, Christopher Nolan lifting things from like foreign films and then saying mm. that he came up with it himself. There's a similar oh. interaction happening there where it's like these few like mainstream auteurs get to be hailed as geniuses. And it's like, it's because you were like paying attention to what was happening in these indie spaces and these like fringe spaces. And you just kind of like lifted things. Well, I think that is, (laughs) I I swear we could go for another hour. (laughs) I appreciate the ways that you highlighted a number of the issues you did. I do think that there need to be more opportunities for us to have, discussions not just about the games themselves but the people who make them and the folks who are on those outside areas on the fringes if the indie space informs triple a what do they call it the double a or the triple i indie space informs the sort of large-scale triple a movement there are all sorts of individual creators on the small scale the hobbyists the avant-garde that you talked about that inform a lot of these trends that we see take uh take flight in the formal indie space yeah and it's not as though so i want to be clear like a lot of those people who make those interesting games like it's not like they have contempt for the medium they obviously love games a lot even 
a lot of like major studio releases and i like a lot of those games too i have a lot of contempt for the industry processes and like the inequalities and the exploitation in the industry i hate all that stuff but i don't necessarily hate like every piece of productive output that people put a lot of work into i recognize that um there are lots of like sort of double a and and triple a games that i really like and I recognize that people get inspired by other people all the time, don't always necessarily realize where that inspiration comes from. Mm. But what I'm talking about isn't just people people at bigger studios being inspired by you know smaller hobbyists and vice versa. That's fine. But I'm talking about a very specific process of people who are doing a lot of this legwork, who are doing a lot of that overhead work, putting in a lot of that preliminary labor, who are basically toiling in obscurity who don't really get jobs and if they did have jobs would have to like totally compromise on all of their visions in order to like fit in and you know make shareholders happy or whatever yeah but i am talking about i'm not talking about just inspiration like i'm talking about a very specific funneling up of like a lot of creative effort that's made by people whose names that if nobody ever like because you're not going to see it in major publications you're not going to see major studios ever talking about them that you would probably never hear about and like that's really the issue, that there is an unequal power dynamic there. It sounds like that is even more of a reason to have the kind of work out there from critics who are covering those fringes and paying attention to what's what's taking place there. Yeah, well, I try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I want to live in a world where like, you know, that power dynamic doesn't exist because like everyone is a hobbyist, like everyone has the time and space and resources to make the weird thing that they want to make. Like yeah. that's the future I want personally, where art is is free, basically. Yeah, I think that's a future worth fighting for, for sure. I do want to ask you the the question we ask everybody who we interview. If you were to recommend uh, an Intella game, a game that you feel like changes the way that you looked at games or a game that you feel is really influential, uh, what would that game be? Okay, this is like a really hard one for me, but if I had <laughs> to pick one where I was like, well, this changes the whole damn game for me that really kind of blew my mind when I played it. I think I would pick Space Funeral by the Catamites. Space Funeral is a, it's an RPG maker game that is like a very like meta commentary on the games industry at the time. It came out in 2010 and it's by the Catamites, who is like maybe my favorite living developer. It's basically, it takes place in this, like, dream world, and you play this character named Philip, who is this, like, little boy who wears pajamas and cries all the time. Oh. He lives in this, like, corrupted world, and he's trying to basically uncorrupt it. You know, like, the whole world is made of these, like, weird, like, glitches, which is something that, like, befell the world. And it's a really, really interesting game. It's, it's one of the most unique games. And I think it was one of the most, like, quietly influential indie games maybe ever. And it actually spawned a bunch of, like, fan-made sequels. So there's, like, six of them, I think, that are all made by different oh. people. So that was one of the most interesting ones for me. The other one I would say that is, like, this is, like, a must-play game, if I'm allowed to have two. <laughs> sure. Um, the other one I would say is, like, Shut Up and Jam Gaiden by Tales of Games, which is another incredibly weird turn-based RPG. So that one rules. Sweet. I remember hearing about Shut Up and Jam Gaiden... Uh, back in the day, but I never spent any time with it. It's great. It's uh, it's a masterpiece. B people know less about Space Funeral than I think Shut Up and Jam Gaiden, 
but yeah, it's a, it's a really funny, really funny game. And again, it's, it's a lot like Space Funeral in the sense that it's like, it's not just a, a really funny, absurd premise. It's also meant to be sort of like a commentary on games in general. It's a very meta kind of meta theatrical thing where it's very self-conscious of the fact that it's an RPG. It uses it as an opportunity to talk about like the structures of different kinds of RPGs and what they actually like do formally. It's a very like self-conscious thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's like a jumping off point to talk about pop culture and like early internet culture and like how those two things intersect. Um, it's really neat. I like it a lot. And I'm sad that the sequel didn't really uh, pan out. Well, uh, thank you, Lana, for your time. Thank you for uh, the work you've been doing. And I wish you good health and also that you're able to continue doing the, the work that you're doing. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. You can find more information about Lana by following her on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetic. You can also support her work on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash thefreakmuseum, and you can find her streams at twitch.tv slash thefreakmuseum. Alright folks, that does it for another edition of Intelligame Radio. I've been your host, Josh Boykin. You can find me on Twitter at Wallstormer. Thanks again to Lana Polanski for being on the show. You can find out more about Intelligame by going to the homepage, intelligame.us. Or you can find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, at IntelligameUs. If you'd like to help Intelligame's work keep going, consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe and help keep this work and the other work connected to Intelligame moving. This month, we'll be donating our funds to charity, splitting them between Rain and Black Girls Code. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next episode. Keep your eyes up, keep your hearts open, and keep IntelliGaming.